Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Merry Christmas and a happy new podcast. Strike up the band! motorway service station and the phone went off and it was the current prime minister at the time and it was he just wanted a joke you didn't really need any attack lines on ids because they were supplied by his own side yeah we ended up making a joke about how david cameron was a bit like toilet duck Yes, here we are again then with the Christmas special of How to Win an Election, your insider's guide to a huge political year ahead, uh, looking ahead to 2024. I'm Matt Chorley, still joined by new Labour mastermind Peter Madison, Polly McKenzie, who's Director of Policy for Nick Clegg and the Coalition, and Tory Brainbox, Daniel Finkelstein. You can send in your questions to howtowinatthetimes.co.uk uh, and we'll uh, answer them in the coming weeks. In fact, this whole episode today is going to be answering some of your questions because so many have sent them in. But first of all, happy Christmas, everyone. Happy Christmas. Happy to Christmas. Happy Christmas. Happy, happy Christmas, Christmas, Polly, to you. Uh, happy Hanukkah to you, Danny. Thank you. And happy, to be fair, to Ed Miliband, <laughs> to you, uh, Peter. Uh, we've got some Christmas crackers. Here we are, look. So um, no, no expense spared. Oh, God. Um, They're really light, aren't they? <laughs> do you want, do you want me to pause my sword with Peter and no, I? You can pull it with Peter. Pull it with Peter. I'll pull it with Polly. Here we are, look. Oh, bang! Oh, I won both. <laughs> there we are. I've won both as well. Uh, very good. Um, oh, I love that smell of gunpowder in the morning. Oh, yes, lovely. Put put your put your paper hats on, everyone. Make uh, good way. Just having a look here. How have you been celebrating Christmas? Uh, with my mother and my brother and uh, how many children? I don't know. So many, it's hard to count. Lovely. Are you a turkey? I'm not a turkey. I'm a human being. No, but are you are you a turkey person? Uh, I am a big fan of it. I even like Brussels sprouts, but mm. I like them cooked with bacon and chestnuts. Yeah, yeah. I can't find the joke in here. How will Davy write his next speech? <laughs> <I don't? laughs> oh, yeah, I've got it. I've got it. Um, Daddy, how do you spend Christmas? Well, we do, we do get together as a family, but we don't tend to celebrate Christmas really because sort of uh, uh, obviously we're not Christian. There we are, Peter. Oh, be in Wiltshire <laughs> with, the, with the cattle, the sheep. You were what, recreating the nativity? Yes. <laughs> I haven't decided which, what I'm going to what bring. Are you a wise man, maybe? You know, a bit of myrrh, a bit of incense. Yes. You know, I haven't quite decided a baby? yet. baby? 
kidnap a baby um, or a baby no baby being planned you never um, can tell though <laughs> we've just tied the knot peter this time i have tied the knot and i did actually ask my newly minted husband uh whether a baby would be a nice idea and he gave me a very old-fashioned look <laughs> i think he feels i'm a bit past that well, I don't know. You've been you've been cleaning up after other people for a long time. It'd be, it'd be entirely fit. So basically, on on the uh, on the podcast today, what we thought we'd do because we've had so many uh, e- uh, emails in over the last uh, however long it's six, seven, eight weeks we've been doing Hans Lecture, and we never get through enough of them because we end up eating up all our time. So this is from Ben in Pinner. Do you know Ben, Danny? Possibly, everyone I, in I mean, there are, there's more than one person called Ben in Pinner, so <laughs> this may be one of the Bens that I'd know. Daddy is the king of, king of maybe Pinner. Maybe one so of the Bens says, that I do not know. Hi, Matt. I love the different introductions each week, but surely, alongside Mastermind Peter and Brainbox Danny, Polly needs a bit more than Head of Policy for Nick Clegg. How about Lib Dem Policy Whiz? I'm not sure about the word whiz. Um, <laughs> you just say all-star? We need, we need, we need a, a policy star, policy wonk. Think, they used to say that I was Nick Clegg's brain, which uh, oh, it's, it's a bit like Danny's got that one. And also it's a bit weird because he is, in fact, a separate human from me. Polly McKenzie was and, Nick Clegg's brain. I, but it's creepy, right? Yeah, it is a bit. Like, so what would you like? Chubster. That's we me. quite liked Policy McKenzie. I like Policy McKenzie. Policy, yeah, policy McKenzie's great. Yeah, policy. Okay. Uh, ben also says, uh, also, after enjoying listening every week, I now feel very sad. I was too unwell to attend uh, Danny's book event in Pinner for his previous book, and I wish I could have met him. There we are. I, I think Polly is hilarious. Well, that's just the end of the letter. <laughs> <laughs> and as a new Labour fan, I'm in awe of Peter, so perhaps a How to Win an Election roadshow could be on the cards. I'm, I'm willing to go to Pinner. Well, that's what he does say, come to Pinner first. I'm certainly where willing to go to Pinner. Where is it Where is it? We could it's go not on far, it's on the road from London to Watford. Oh. So where I live, if you would go out of my house and sort of turn right, you're out of London. Yeah. In fact. We could get a we could get a tour bus. Do you fancy that, Peter? I, 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 I can't think of anything I'd rather do next in this coming year. Right. I mean, are you serious? Four, yeah, let's get a tour bus. We'll hit the road. We have to actually do, by the way, those buses that you have in elections there, that we must have that. Yeah. You know, the Lib Dem, Lib Dem battle bike and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> Rishi Sunak travelling exclusively by helicopter. Yeah. Yeah, those things. See if he can single-handedly uh, kickstart climate change. And how the, the buses are always like a total metaphor. They break down or you double part them. Or they, they basically the provide... Wasn't there a huge row once somebody's tax disc was expired? Yeah, they were all on a battle things. bus. Oh, that's probably happened loads of yeah. times. And then there's a the question of where the expenses get logged for a battle bus. Is it constituency oh, yes, spend whilst it. they're in the constituency? What if it stays? It what if it, you know, yeah. it's well, there's a whole body accounting stuff. Well, that's good. Well, I'm glad we sorted that. We were going to go on the road in 2024. Good. Callum says, love the new podcast about how to win an election. Your panel are very interesting and have a treasure trove of fascinating insights. Please do an episode on long and short campaigns and whether the final weeks and days of an election can really make any difference. Are elections actually won over the course of the previous four or five years? I'd be interested to know uh, the panelists' thoughts on that. Polly, just explain for us what we mean by the long and short campaign. Well, the long campaign is what we're doing now, I guess, uh, the slow build-up to an election. The short campaign is usually from the suspension of Parliament uh, when the MPs are no longer MPs, the last sort of four weeks, basically, until polling day. And actually, they are regulated differently. There are different spending rules for the long and the short campaign periods. So what do we think then about, is it is it all 
warn just, you know, when the Prime Minister calls the election campaign in the last, what, three, four, five weeks of the campaign, does that make any difference? Are there examples in history where they... An election has changed, or is it all decided? Well, the fam- famous one was 2017, hmm. which uh, which had no long campaign because Theresa May surprised everyone by calling it and then didn't show up for the short campaign itself. She was barely visible. She didn't do events. But she I didn't think- do debates. Uh, she left the stage to Jeremy Corbyn, who made hay of the whole thing. Uh, I mean, in the end, I mean, the the vote was it was basically about Brexit. It was a rerun of the Brexit referendum the year before. Mm. And all the pro-Brexit people lined up behind Theresa May and the Tories showed the vote went up. And all the anti-Brexits lined up behind uh, Jeremy Corbyn, collapse of Lib Dems, and the Labour share went up as well. So that's what happened in the short campaign. And, of course, famously, uh, Theresa lost her majority. Yeah, it was a disaster. Because, uh, although most of that is ascribed to things that Theresa May did, in fact, as you correctly said, Peter, the Tory vote went up. What what happened during that campaign was that the anti-Tory vote consolidated. Yeah. Now, whether that was because that was going to happen anyway, uh, or whether it was... No, I think it was over Brexit. I think people re-ran the Brexit campaign. I think that's probably right, and I think also... Oddly, something that I would normally say absolutely did not have any impact because it's too small an issue, but which was Tim Farron's positioning of himself on gay rights. Um, I think that did have an effect on pushing people away from the Liberal Democrats, possibly towards Labour at the beginning of the campaign, and consolidating the anti-Tory vote. So much. I also think, by the way, the the Daily Mail's headline, which was all about how she was going to put sort of Labour to the sword, effectively, that probably also. Cross the saboteurs, that probably also had an effect. So that was a a breaching. So I would have, before 2017, I would have answered this question quite, probably quite arrogantly. Of course, it makes no difference. It's like three, when people are not following, it doesn't make any difference. The last few years makes all the difference. The economic position, it isn't even campaigning so much. But 2017 does mean you have to pause over that. And I think it probably was the consolidation of the opposition vote during that election. So I think the 2010 election is another one where actually what happened in those last four weeks made a huge difference uh, because of the debates. Yeah, um, and suddenly, you know, suddenly Nick Clegg shot out of a hat and there he was. Well, you know, like the day before that, we were everyone still wanted to Everyone the, wanted to agree with Nick. Yes, but, like, why we went, aren't you as we famous from, as Charlie Kennedy? Exactly. Blah, 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 it, blah. Was, suddenly, I remember the row about how... They'd put Vince Cable on the side of the bus and next to Nick Clegg because nobody knew who Nick Clegg was. Yeah, but nothing changed, did it? I mean, no. The Liberal Democrats, uh, at, you know, at that time was a, basically a two-party election, which would, I think, in normal circumstances, have crushed the Liberal Democrats because it is a make or break. Do you want to change or do you want to kind of hold on to the Labour Party? Um, and that that sort of pincer movement, which would have suppressed Liberal Democrat vote as it did in 2015, as it did in 2017, was completely kind of exploded by the debates and by the opportunity for people to see there being actually three choices and for Nick Clegg to be charming and charismatic and witty and everyone to accidentally say that they agreed with him. And, and you know, the Liberal Democrats surged enormously in the polls. That then in the very last few days, the last five or six days, started to squeeze back again to that sort of two-party machine, which is how we ended up with a few fewer seats despite getting two million or so more votes. But it it did change the election campaign. I genuinely think that Liberal Democrats would have been crushed 
if it hadn't been for the debate. Well, I'm not sure procedure. that I'm right, but I, I, but I disagree with that. I mean, that's obviously a perfectly tenable thesis. My alternative to that would be if you look at the polls before the election and on election day, they were pretty much the same. We saw an awful lot of fluctuation in the middle of it, but really in the end, people voted as they were going to vote pretty much at the beginning. Uh, we thought the Liberal Democrats would have a breakthrough in lots of places they didn't. Um, and, they didn't um, do badly, though. No, no, I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I'm not saying that. We Basically, we were going to have hung parliament at the beginning of the election campaign. We ended up with a hung parliament, and the polls were roughly speaking at the end of the campaign what so they I were at the beginning. I don't completely agree with that because I think the reason we ended up with a hung parliament is partly because of Nick's performance. Everyone wanted to agree with Nick, but also I think Gordon Brown did better in the debates than he had done otherwise during the campaign and during the long campaign. I think the Tories really uh, pummeled him. Uh, over the financial crisis and public finances and everything. And suddenly they saw in the debates a Gordon Brown who was quite a superior, quite a big guy, big picture person who had managed things fairly well. And, I mean, he he was furious with me beforehand for agreeing these debates. Um, I, I had thought they were totally unavoidable. I didn't think we could run away uh, from debates anymore. And it was a breakthrough whose time I think they arrived. had absolutely no influence whatsoever. <laughs> well, and, I don't, and I think people are exactly the same view as they... And I think all that happened was that we, at the beginning of the campaign, we overestimated the chances of the Conservatives having a majority because we underestimated just how big the swing... Which may be relevant to this time, by the way. We underestimated how big the swing that was required we'll come back and to look get at, the Tories look at majority TV debates, But maybe actually the two, the, the two examples, 2017 and 2010, are sort of connected because... You know, in 2017, there wasn't the Tim Fowen surge. You know, he just got squeezed out of it. But then there was 2015, yeah. which was Miliband versus Cameron. Now, to be fair to Ed Miliband, uh, he'd actually had a very good long campaign yeah. on austerity and cost of living and everything. Then when it came to it and people were concentrating, actually I had to make a choice between yeah, Cameron and Miliband. It's that squeeze. The it squeeze that, that well, Tories they, they did. Looked, they looked at the two and thought, does Miliband square up to Cameron and they decided yeah. not? I didn't think he did have a good... I thought I thought for a long campaign it wasn't very good because he didn't concentrate on an issue on which he could win on. It was better he, than the short campaign. No, and <laughs> he also, he blamed the Liberal Democrats, which was an odd tactic given that the Conservatives were the larger party and his main enemy. Well, thank you, so, Callum, because Callum sent in that question and it's got us talking. Um, apparently, the mistake in giving you crackers is that you've now got things to fiddle with, which are being picked up by the microphone. So the various bits of paper, I'm not even sure what that is. <laughs> <laughs> it's a spring just, it's of It's just some designed kind. to be fiddled I've with. I've got a small notebook. Yeah, you can't hear it, whatever it is. So just stop fiddling. Well, we'll do some more of uh, the questions that you've emailed in in just about here on how to win an election. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is How to Win Election with Matt Shirley and Peter Manderson, Polly McKenzie and Daniel Finkelstein. We are answering some of the questions that you've sent in uh, because we've got so many and it's Christmas. So we thought it'd be nice when there's a new Christmas card. Uh, if you want to get in touch with questions for 2024, you can email us howtowin at thetimes.co.uk. Now, Valentina has been in touch saying, apologies if this comes across as some chippy Scott. But I wonder if parts of the UK that are not England might possibly get an analytical glance now and again. Uh, these, um, and then it goes on and on and on, but it's all quite chippy. Um, have, we, <laughs> have we made a mistake in not talking? Because we do, I mean, partly I suppose it's because we are Westminster focused, the parties that fight right across the UK. But actually what's going on in Scotland and Wales is... But Scotland's going to make or break a Labour yeah. majority at the next election, so perhaps we all should focus on it. Yeah. Uh, we, did, we did talk at one point about time for change and the fact that it's obviously having an impact on the SNP as well as the Tories and how therefore it isn't just simply about the issues that the Tories face and the issues the Scots and that's face, which we tend to look at as if they were discreet. It's something that unites both and it's the fact they've been in power for a long time. But actually, I do, th- you know, I've always feel a bit diffident about talking about the Scottish uh, election because I'm kind of very aware that there are lots of cultural elements to that um, political division that I just don't get. So I, I, I think it's a fair, probably a fair accusation that I don't include it enough in my analysis. Yeah, I think Valentina's been chatting to my dad, who uh, lives in Scotland or um, used is, to live in is Wales. Is your dad called Valentine? <laughs> <laughs> no. Very poorly disguised. But, you know, it, it, it is a different dynamic. Northern Ireland is its own really relatively separate kind of political dynamic. I think, you know, we need to look at those probably in depth and uh, separately. Yeah, we'll come and have a look the, at that. You know, the, the, the way that the political dynamic which... You know, Labour used used to absolutely dominate Wales and Scotland, and the way that that was lost. Um, uh, well, partly for Labour, it was blown up in Scotland in two thousand and fifteen. Yeah, exactly. But here is the point: I think that there is a very important sort of cardinal principle about Labour in Scotland, and that is when Labour loses its way in Westminster, it loses its way in Scotland. The point is that the only point of really voting for the Labour in Scotland is if they're doing well enough in England to supply a government 
in Westminster. And if they're not, and if they're flailing around in England, then Scots will say, what's the point of voting for them here? So you have to do well in England in order to do well in Scotland. And what about the... Because it was interesting that Keir Starmer now says on the record that he got rid of Richard Leonard in Scotland because he, he was the Scottish Labour leader who said it wasn't very good as part of his sort of three-point plan, that would clearing out the Scottish... Um, is this a similar thing going on in Wales? It's been speculated that, that you know, Mark Drakeford, although he'd said he wouldn't serve, you know, people have broken their promises before about how long they might go on and on and on. Uh, but actually, Labour's record in Wales is going to be a stick to beat them with, isn't it, in the general election? What, you know, schools, the NHS, 20 mile per hour zones, you know, the, the, does it, is it helpful for Keir Starmer that Mark Drakeford's been got out of the way? It may or may not be, but I don't think he had anything to do with the decision, certainly nothing uh, that I've heard. All I know is that the, you know, removing Richard Leonard in Scotland paved the way, opened the way for Anna Sawa, who's just a brilliant leader. I mean, he's sort of, you know, he's a clever, smart, funny dancing does brilliant dancing videos very very attractive indeed and he's 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 a star you know he's box office uh, anasawa so uh, anything that opened the way for him was obviously a progressive labor gain and that's what's happened okay uh, well Valentin, we will come back with that and we'll maybe we can we could get a fifth person in the studio who knows about scottish matters or welsh matters well, we could just put on accents well, that's good they like that yeah yeah I think it's worthwhile doing, it, Can worthwhile we do, doing an episode on it. Definitely. We should do a Wales special and uh, I will sing Sospan Vach and then no one will ever tune in again. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll try to pronounce what we now have to call the Brecon Beacons because it upset loads of listeners last time. Uh, right, here's another one. Very good. Tim O'Brien... <laughs> Tim O'Brien says, I've recently come across the podcast and I love it. It's so great to hear people talking who know what they're talking about. I think Tim might have emailed the wrong podcast. He says, but you make it all sound as if politics is a game, albeit deadly. So I'd like to know if you think political principles and philosophy really matter. My view is that politics is the art of the possible, but that you should start with fundamental principles. However, although the public usually see uh, clearly where parties are coming from, too often the parties won't admit uh, where they're coming from for fear of losing too much support. So do we focus too much on the game and not enough on principles? Well, I, I, I let me start by saying that for me, because, you know, I'm the son of, 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 of immigrants, of refugees, and uh, politics, you know, it killed my grandmother and it exiled my grandfather and it stole everything that we had, every stick of furniture, every piece of crockery. Um, so politics really matters a lot and it's certainly not a game. I think we, we do probably correctly concentrate in this on the things that you do that can shift the dial regardless of what you think but peter's always been very clear and i i agree with this that that the that you've got to start with what you believe uh, and if you if what you believe if you can't be authentic if you if what you believe is too far from what the electorate think uh, you're in trouble to start off with um, you you then in order to be authentic you then push yourself out where the where you can't be uh, voted for. Yeah, I think her philosophy does matter a lot because it defines you more than anything else. I think that in the country, I have a very rough and ready view of the electorate. About half of it is left-leaning and half of it is right-leaning. Sorry to be so unsophisticated. But here's the point. Growing numbers of those left-leaning and right-leaning uh, voters have broken the habit automatically of voting for one party or another, uh, they're, 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 
they, they literally, I mean, millions of voters are changing how they vote from one election to another. And, you know, if, if you're the Labour Party, yes, you know, you're appealing to the left-leaning part of the country. But if you arrive at the mistaken view that actually there's a sort of socialist majority in the country, you know, you're going to be led badly astray. You know, there is not a majority of people in this country who are going to vote for socialism. They will vote with their conscience and they will vote for reform. And that's why the Labour Party has to be a party of conscience and reform. It does have to have a conscience. It has to remember you know, people in the country who are not so well off, who are disadvantaged and who need a strong government uh, at their side. But if all you're doing is sort of negotiating with your past in the Labour Party... Uh, rather than thinking how can you do things differently and better in the future, and not all people in the Labour Party think like that, sorry to take a very new Labour view, um, you, you, you're, you're there. You've got to be both conscience and reform. You know how you, how you can help the underdog, how you can create opportunities for people uh, who have talent and want to make the most of it for themselves and what government can do to help them. But you've also got to do government in different ways. Uh, and that's the challenge for Labour. And Polly, what about you? Because you've obviously had the twin experience of inserting yourself into a long-standing political party mm-hmm. and however that might go against your, what you actually thought while also l- being involved in launching a political party where you can help set its philosophy if you like politics is absolutely about how you think the country should be run uh and that might be by trying to win an election and become the government and you know I think we've talked about this before, but, you know, you win elections in order to run the country. You don't run the country in order to win elections. And if you're if you're putting the cart before the horse, you really are screwing things up uh, if you are putting your party before the interests of the country. Um, but as we saw with UKIP, right, it is possible for a political party to, to change the conversation in a way that can shift politics and shift the conversation in order to, I, I guess, push the government, push the dominant political parties to think differently, to act differently, whether for good or ill. And so you don't only need to think about governing as a way of leading social, cultural and uh, and political change. But for me, you know, democracy is about how the people choose to be governed. And we think we sometimes, because each individual gets a vote, we imagine that democracy is about me getting what I want. But it's not, you know, a demos is not just people, it is a people, a way of us being together as a, as a collective. And so as Peter says, you, you can't try and just govern for one side, govern for your partisan interest. If you become the prime minister, you are, you, you know, you have to govern for all of the people. And you have to do that with principles, with honesty, and, and also what, by, I think, engaging with what all of your people uh, want and would choose and try and actually build up that sense of who we are, mm. who we are collectively. That's why I think that Sunak's campaign is going to do badly in the coming year. He's designing a campaign which is all wokey-cokey. It's all about divisions. It's all about <laughs> inserting <laughs> divisions. Why has nobody... I've never heard that before. Wokey-cokey's good. Peter's just written his first joke. Yeah. It was, it was, <laughs> I'm trying to make a serious point here. Okay, we're wearing a Christmas hat and a, um, and a festive brooch, don't, but yeah, go on. Don't say things that rhyme if you're trying to be serious. <laughs> okay, but like, what, what, what would you Well, let do, me, let me, let me say that I do, I do not think that you know, making uh, the boat people and sending a hundred-odd migrants to Rwanda really is the hill 
on which Rishi Sunak should be fighting and prepared to die in the coming year. I think it's absolutely ridiculous. I think it's it's a laughable gimmick. I mean, the only people who are actually laughing are the Rwandans. They're laughing all the way to the bank. Uh, they're making so much money out of this ridiculous uh, thing. I mean, by the way, I mean, I know one shouldn't sort of, one doesn't make jokes about illegal immigration. Going back to the discussion we had uh, previously about jokes, I think the fact that Starmer started mocking uh, Sunak over Rwanda at Prime Minister's questions actually turned the tide on, on Rwanda. Is that a, uh, is that a joke? Is that, that turned the tide? Is that a joke? No, it's not, it's not a joke. <laughs> Nautical. But, but it, been, he used humour in order to mock yeah. uh, this gimmick. I think then everyone started relaxing, his own side started thinking, what on earth are we doing uh, on, on this hill? And it you know, made people feel, God, you know, you're right. Um, and that the election this coming year has to be about something, a whole range of issues which are much bigger than small boats. Yeah. Well, we'll wait and see because we'll obviously have plenty to discuss uh, next year. So what I thought we'd do, as it's our Christmas episode, we've had lots of emails have been sent in. But I thought, why don't we get you to ask each other questions? The burning issues that you've wanted to 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 get to the bottom of. Um, Polly, who do you want to ask a question of first? I want to ask Peter why the Labour Party is so rubbish at having women leaders? It's a very, very good question. I mean, we're very good at having acting women leaders. Margaret Beckett was stood in when John Smith tragically died. Harriet Harman uh, was acting leader when Ed Miliband sort of disappeared. Um, so we're good at having acting ones. We're not so good at electing them in the first case. Is it, where, where, is it sexism? No, it's not sexism. It's sort of luck of the draw, really. It's who comes out of that drawer and who's available <laughs> and, you know, who they've got behind them and etc. No, it's a genuine question. It's whether or not maybe, and this is slightly broad brushy, but, you know, is there something about it being born out of the quite male-dominated union movement that is sort of locked in this idea of...? I don't think so. We've got both the leaders of uh, the biggest trade unions in the country are women of unison and unite. You know, but it can't we, just we, be luck, right? Like, if the Conservative Party have managed three female prime ministers and the Labour Party's never managed yeah, to elect Yeah, there was nothing lucky about Liz Truss, you're quite right. <laughs> <laughs> Although, to be fair, the Lib Dems only had one. Oh, the Lib Dems are rubbish too. I mean, I, I accept that. Is it, what, where does that come from? They've the never Lib had Dems? a single prime minister. So <laughs> it's much harder Despite for the, Liber- the one woman you had. It's much harder for the Liberal Democrats because the, because the party's got a smaller base from which to elect any leader so they're they're much more you know it's much more sort of based on who on earth can be leader because not that many people can be leaders so i think it's harder for the liberal democrats than for labor easier for the women's equality party yes but unlikely to win a general election i think at this stage few years but there was at the same time you know just thinking of the labor party alongside keir starmer are two very powerful women rachel reeves and uh, angela rayner I mean, they will be very prominent, both of them, in the, come the election campaign. I really enjoyed the preposterous briefing a few weeks ago where uh, the, Rishi Sunak was going to make Claire Coutinho Chancellor just to annoy Keir Starmer because then Rachel Reeves wouldn't be the first female Chancellor. I just thought, that, if that's the level they're operating well, on... Well, there's a lot of sort of inside the Westminster <laughs> bubble, Beltway, people surrounding what Sunak who, think of, who think of little else. But. Yeah. Yeah. Danny, who would you like to ask a question of? I shall ask both of you a question to which I do not know the answer myself, so it's not a gotcha question. It's an, 
Did Keir Starmer make an error serving Jeremy Corbyn in his cabinet, or was it necessary for all that follows? In other words, Again, in other a words, very very good question. It's a very difficult question. No, so, I said it's a very good question. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it's difficult at all because if we hadn't had Keir Starmer, you know, putting up with Corbyn during all that nonsense uh, and sticking and sticking to it and going through, he would, in my view not have been elected leader of the Labour Party and we would have got... Would you have said, we would have got, as, as, as No, a, but then I didn't want to be leader and nobody expected that. The truth is that if Keir hadn't been there and if he hadn't be, been able to present himself as somebody who had stuck through these hard times, I think the party, uh, there was a big risk of the party voting for a Corbynista successor, Rebecca Long-Bailey, instead. And that would have been curtains, have been curtains for the Labour Party. I don't know what you curtains for the Labour Party if Keir Starmer had not won in 2019 and if he hadn't now turned around the Labour Party in the way that he has. I've never understood the sort of the, the tribalism of the Labour Party sort of properly or it, the way that it seems to look like and feel like from inside. The the extent of the, I don't know, the resentment. It wasn't factionalism about, it was disgust about Corbyn. It wasn't factionalism. But there is also factionalism. Uh, it's it's part of I think who the party unlike the Tory Party with their five families. Uh, uh, I'm, we're not talking about the Conservative <laughs> Party right now, and but so it 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 seems to me that after a period of enormous division and conflict for the Labour Party, as Peter says, having had him Starmer inside the Corbyn tent, enable has enabled him to actually pull that party together enough. Um, that it can feel like a relatively coherent force, even whilst he sort of expels the the Corbynista faction as much as he can. I think he's, you know, it, it's it's so important for him to correct the the mistakes of that Corbyn era, particularly around anti-Semitism, um, and he's done that. He's had to do that quite viciously because he was associated with in the past. I think it's, I think it's more than that. I think he was almost unusual in that shadow cabinet in saying nothing about it. So even like John McDonnell would criticise some of the answers. Yeah, he did a little bit, to be fair. I mean, actually, but not very much. I mean, not like no. it was because I remember interviewing about it and trying to get no, you didn't. know anything out of him. It wasn't just that he so was the, in the shadow the, cabinet. There a, were lots of people in the shadow cabinet. That's why I asked this question. I mean, it's 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 difficult, right? So one of the ways in which he attained the position he had in the leadership election, which was the the kind of uh, middle person the in the party that the Corbynistas could vote for is precisely because he held this position. You know, and of course, of course, if you jump merely to the fact that this then helped him win the leadership and helping him win the leadership was a good thing, then that's obviously a correct decision. Would you say the but we, party? Yes, but, but it also nearly drowned the Labour Party because he supported Corbyn in, in office. In other words, he helped Corbyn's leadership and at, at general election told people to vote for Jeremy Corbyn as Prime Minister. So I, I, I'm being quite genuine when I say the reason why this is important is because obviously uh, this goes for everybody who has to consider the question of whether or not to stay in something, to be in the leadership team of something which they don't fully believe in, right? Um, and and that is a question for absolutely everybody in politics that he is exemplified. And so therefore, if we're saying it was acceptable, you're saying, we are saying, that it's acceptable to, to be involved in this kind of uh, 
effectively a sort of deception. Danny, I think I it was a very pragmatic judgment on his But I suppose part. there's a question about how bad would Jeremy Corbyn have had to have been for Keir Starmer to say enough is enough? Because I, I think, think I think to lots of people it got bad enough. Well, but it clearly ass- did. People left the party over it. Peter, you're assuming that Keir Starmer's politics at that time was the same as it is now. I have a different view of it. I think that Keir Starmer is somebody who's not been all his life... like super concentrated on where he is factionally, where he is in terms of the Labour Party and had to do that as leader and has shifted his position that he spent almost his whole career actually to the left of people like you and Tony Blair and Neil, even Neil Kinnock and certainly you know, and Gordon Brown uh, and he has then taken over he's, he then followed that through with Jeremy Corbyn because he was actually on the left um, and then as leader of the party he's realised that position is not a particularly practical one and he can't get elected from it and he's not sure he thinks it's right anymore now that he's, ish- now that, you know, he's an intelligent guy and he can see the issues coming in to him so I think he has shifted his I position. Don't I don't really agree with that I think that Keir Starmer has had to think about a lot of policy issues which didn't previously confront yeah. him yeah. Um, I mean he only, what, he only came into politics, into frontline politics in 2000 and uh, 15 and for me I mean <laughs> look he's got no ideological hang-ups about the economy and about business he's a sort of partner guy partnership guy he knows that you need th- flourishing businesses in order to create jobs and grow the economy and he'd never think of any sort of economy in which you did sort of team up with business in order to advance the, the country's economic interest. And on national security and defence, where, you know, he has broken with Corbyn in the most sort of dramatic uh, way. Corbyn, who wasn't even pro-West, yeah. wasn't pro-NATO. Yeah, but he gave the benefit of the, the doubt whenever he could to Putin and Russia. Why he spent so now, long in the, in the he is cabinet. He is somebody who is not wobbly, on defence and national security. So so that's not new. I think that's what something he's found inside him because he but he's never been confronted with these issues before. Okay, let's move on because you need to make sure that you get your chance, uh, Peter. What is your question you'd like to ask? And well, is it about Ed Miliband? I, it's not about uh, Ed Miliband. I've got a question for um, Danny, first of all, and that is how would you advise Rishi Sunak if... Nigel Farage applied for membership of the Conservative Party. Uh, yeah, I, that's a good, good question. Um, so I don't believe a Farage's Conservative Party can work. I don't think it would be stable, uh, and I don't think it would win elections. So there are two parts to this. The first of all is, do I wish to be myself a member of a political party in which he's a member? And the answer to that is, I do not. Um, his politics are quite distinct from mine. But the second so you is, would leave, would you? So I, well, I, I guess... Um, I guess I probably would. I don't. I, you know, it's difficult to to tell. That would be my working assumption. Um, a, a lot would depend on the reaction of people to it and what position he took and how far he'd moved his politics in order to accept this. But if he, if it was essentially a reverse takeover of his type of politics, I think it would be very difficult. And I think a lot of other people would react like me. Um, but uh, but we'll, you know, I don't. I, I, I'm not going to answer an if question. But that would be my working assumption. Absolutely. Um, the the sort of second part of it is would it be in itself a stable 
Is the populist position a stable position for a broad-based Conservative Party? Could it be as successful in the next 100 years as it's been in the last 100 years? Um, and I think it will not be. I've always think trying to sack your old voters and replace them with new ones is a really difficult uh, manoeuvre to pull off. And I don't think it's... I, so I think that it would produce a party which simultaneously had a kind of... Uh, libertarian leadership and a security-minded electorate and I think um, that will not that would you know it's a problem enough for any Conservative Party but it would become very severe with him in the leadership. Yeah I've got a question for Polly and that is if you were advising Ed Davey in the event of a hung parliament Labour or Tory sort of majority minority led a hung parliament what would you advise Ed Davey should be his biggest ask or condition for his support? Um, so I, I don't think they should go for any kind of coalition or, or possibly no. even no sort of formal deal either. I don't think Keir Starmer would offer one. I think he'd just bluster his way as a, as a minority government if, if he had to. I think the Liberal Democrats have to focus on an issue and ideally an issue that is not the electoral system i think that and, and not because so i'm not electoral reform i, I not mean I, mass, I massively care about it and i believe in it and i think that our entire democratic system is just rubbish but how do you how do you build up a position uh in which uh in, in, in which you can look like you care about what people care about instead of caring about your own interests. and that's So the what's the most form. important thing to the Liberal Dems, do you think, uh, to Ed Davey? Well, I, I would worry that they would do something to stop anybody building any houses because in their immediate electoral interest, kind of recapturing that sort of... Um, the, the commuter belt outside London is incredibly important to them. I, I would want them to think about... Uh, pushing Labour around green investment and and green growth because that is an area where we know that actually, you know, there's plenty of support for that within the Labour Party, but there's also a lot of concern about fiscal positioning, concern about um, about how to well, do that. And in the to, end, if To be fair to Ed Miliband, there are plenty of takers <laughs> for that. <laughs> <laughs> Ally with Ed Miliband. But, you know, let, but let's yeah. just remember that, like, I, I'm much better at policy than politics. What would actually win them some more votes? God only knows. More big stunts, more big stunts. Uh, well, finally then, uh, before we round off for the last one in 2023, I want to ask you all a question. You need to give me two names of the answers. Who is in Downing Street and who, well, and then who will be in the White House? Who's going to win? Who's going to be the Prime Minister this time next year? And who's going to win the US election next year? Uh, Rishi Sunak will still be the Prime Minister because they won't have called the election. Oh, of course, because you're very much in January. Although by this point, they will have had to have done. Yeah, but he's still technically be okay, the so Prime Minister. Okay, so he's still the Prime Minister, yeah, of course. Yeah, so you're he, still he, might not, he'll be in a helicopter somewhere. Before <laughs> uh, we go over so on Boxing Day. He'll be in, is it Father Christmas? No, it's Rishi Sunak by next January will be in California. <laughs> he's not going to be even in this country. Uh, no, so uh, he, he's, he's a tech bro. So go on then, finish, finish the... So Rishi Sunak is still there because we haven't had the election yet. Who's US President? Well, I mean, also still Biden because yeah, the inauguration. Oh, so who will be wins the election? Um, oh, sorry, <laughs> Pedant. Blood out I of used to have stone, a T-shirt that said Polly Mackenzie Pedant and Proud. Yeah. So yeah, I'm going to go. Yeah, that's the new intro. Uh, I still, I still think it will be Biden. Biden, interesting, Danny. Yeah. So I think I'm, I'm virtually certain they'll have had an election by then, um, and that therefore Keir Starmer will, and Keir Starmer will be prime minister because the Conservatives will not win a majority, and without that. 
they will not be provide the Prime Minister. And I, I think the ele- American election is extremely difficult to call. Uh, so therefore, it's not a 100% probability. But I think Donald Trump is more likely than not to win it. But that's it's pretty narrow. Peter? I think uh, predictions like that are very dangerous for Labour. Shoe-in elections, uh, basically they say to the electorate, you don't matter, we've taken your vote for granted already. And secondly, it says to the Labour Party, you don't have to change everything because you've won already, so just leave, leave the barnacles there attached to the boat. And it's all very dangerous. So I'm not going to predict that Keir Starmer will be Prime Minister uh, this time. You because, think he could lose? Because I hate shoe-ins and I... Peter, Peter Allison wants Keir Starmer to lose. I hate taking anyone for granted. <laughs> a lot, lot done, a lot still to do. OK, what about the US president? American president, I'm really less sure about. Less sure than that? <laughs> <laughs> less sure than not answering the question? No, I'm, I'm sure about what Labour has to do to win a majority the next election. Oh, Don't I was worry. a politician, I was but a politician. I am really, really worried about the American election. Uh, I think it could be Trump. And that will be a death blow, in my view, to everything we stand for and do and defend and try to advance in the world. Uh, All of us in the West, I think it would be an abject disaster. He'd be off the leash, be nothing to stop him. He'd be surrounded by cleverer people than he was the first time round, and he'd be absolutely determined to completely upset the uh, constitutional apple cart in the United States. And that's going to send ramifications to us all. What a cheery note to end on in this, Sorry. this festive special. Oh, it's my fault for asking the question. Um, well, I hope you all have a lovely break. I look forward to having you back in 2024 because it's going to be absolutely massive. Um, somebody did email in, actually, which we will touch on again. That there are Is it half the people in the world are going to vote next year? I think is the stat. There are lots of numbers around. Anyway, it's a very large number. European a lot of elections. Parliament elections. European Parliament elections. Britain, America, and much besides. And much besides. So we'll, we'll, we'll look at all of those at various points. And yes, we'll talk more about Scotland and Wales. And possibly even Northern Ireland. Um, but thank you, thank you for joining. Thank you. This has been it's been really fun so far. Thank you, man. I'm looking forward to for, to the rest of the year. So happy Christmas, happy New Year, Peter Madison, Daniel Finkstein, Polly McKenzie. If you want to get in touch with us with your own questions, email how to win at thetimes.co.uk. How to win at thetimes.co.uk. That was your Christmas special of how to win an election. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.